Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have Glenna Marshall. Glenna, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, can you tell us about your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry products that you're working on? Yeah, so I've been married to my husband, William, for 16 years. And we have two boys who are 4 and 11. And we live and serve in rural southeast Missouri, where my husband has been pastoring our church for the past 14 years. And I, in my very little spare time between parenting and doing lots of church stuff, uh, I write as much as I can. My first book is coming out August 1st. And then I actually just turned in another manuscript for a book that's coming out next spring. So those are kind of my big projects right now is book writing. I'm kind of glad to have a little bit of a break at the just at this moment. <laughs> you thinking about writing something else? Uh, my husband keeps asking me what book number three is going to be about. And I keep shutting him down really fast. <laughs> yeah. My wife's like, what's the next one after this one or whatever? I'm like, you realize that I have probably like 15, right? <laughs> like literally just off the top of my head. Yeah. Yes. I used to think that. And then I, I got down to writing the manuscripts and I think my brain melted a little bit after the last one. So I need a good break. And then I'm hopefully there will be more after I've had a little uh, rest, I guess. Rest is good. And, and yeah. taking a break and relaxing after working hard is, is always good. Yeah. Well, one Wonderful to, to hear more about you and and uh, what what the Lord is up to there in, in Missouri with you guys. Um, can you tell us about your book that's coming out here? The promise is His presence. Why God is always enough. Uh, why did you write it? Yeah, so I think probably every writer who's written anything would say this, but it's a message I really had to live and learn before I wrote it, and I had no idea that I would be writing a book about this when I was living it. Um, basically, in the promises of presence, I walk the reader through the whole story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and focus on the theme of God's gift of His presence to His people and the way that He makes that promise, the way that He keeps that promise, the way that people reject the notion that he is enough for them and the way that he keeps asserting his presence among his people. We see that through the tabernacle and the temple, through the incarnation of Christ. We see it with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we see the future promises of heaven where he is the gift of heaven. His presence is what we are waiting for and waiting to enjoy forever. And so I tell that story while also weaving in my own personal testimony of how through about a decade of intense personal suffering is what God used to teach me that he was enough for me, that his presence was enough for me in the things that I was facing and going through at the time. And so um, I wrote the book in kind of an unusual structure. I, I wanted to tell this big story of scripture, but sometimes we skip the things that we think we know. So I decided to weave in my personal story to kind of keep the reader in it and then also to connect like your personal circumstances with what you are reading in scripture so that when you 
read about the way that God asserts his presence among his people in the Old Testament, you can see how that is true, um, how his enoughness is a term I use in the book several times. Um, his enoughness for the people of Israel is true for you. His enoughness is enough for you, um, if you want to put it that way. And so I just weave the two stories together, the biblical narrative and then my personal testimony, and just explain the way that God's presence is the answer to all of our longings and achings and yearnings that we have in life. Yeah. And it's really good. Really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. In fact, I really liked what Brian Croft said about your book. Mm. And I agree with him so much. You know, it's theological, but uh, you have the rare ability to weave in your personal story with good theology. And oh, uh, that you. is a gift. So, you know, give thanks to God for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, it was it was really gracious, my publisher. I feel like they thought it was unusual to write the book this way. And yet they were really behind me and <laughs> to let me do that because it is a little bit different than what you read in some trade books in the Christian publishing world. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do it that way. Yeah, it just makes your book stand out in the marketplace. So that's I hope so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, when did you first learn from life experience how following Jesus doesn't protect you from suffering, but leads you very often into the path of suffering. Yeah, the, I actually addressed this, I think, in the introduction of my book. I somehow came away. I grew up in the church, just a very golden childhood, loved being raised in a Christian family, loved being very involved in church, and came to faith in Christ at a young age. And somehow, though, I missed this promise or guarantee of suffering that Christians would face. And I don't know how I missed it. I must have not been reading the scriptures very closely. But, you know, we have a lot of promises that following Christ will lead to suffering. And it's just, it's if, if Jesus suffered and he's the one we're following, I don't know why we think that we're going to be exempt from it. And he promised it in this world, you will have trouble. And then he says, take heart, he's overcome the world. And John 16, and then Peter says in 1 Peter 4, I think it is, he's talking to Christians who are suffering and he says, you know, don't be surprised by suffering as if something strange is happening to you. You know, rejoice that you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ and then James in chapter one, you know, says when you face trials of many kinds, not if you face trials of many kinds. So you have this language all throughout the New Testament that following Christ is going to lead to some hard places. Somehow I missed that growing up in the church. And I really thought that if I really obedient and I really do my best, then God's going to give me what I want. And it's funny because though I wasn't raised in a prosperity gospel church culture, that type of thinking is so sneaky and it really just creeps in at any place place it can get to. And I really thought that, you know, following the rules, I was a little bit legalistic as a child growing up in church, but I thought following the rules would guarantee that God would give me everything I wanted because that was what blessing meant. So I had a real misunderstanding of what the word blessing was anyway, never thought that blessing could be equated with suffering. And so um, it really wasn't until I was in my twenties, my husband and I got married and began trying to have a family and ran into infertility. And it was this first real hard turn in in my life where I had to step back and think, wait a second, this does not go along with what I have mapped out my life to be. And I am asking the Lord to give me something that's good. I'm asking for a child. I believe that he can. So why won't he? And then I had to step back and, and think about what does this communicate about God's character? What do I really believe? Is he loving me? Is he being good to me? And so it was the first time I had to question what place did suffering have in the Christian's life? And I'm a little embarrassed to say it took me that long to question it. And, you know, into my mid-20s, I had a very sheltered life up to that point. 
it's, but that's when I began to go to the scriptures and see that the Christian life is not a guarantee that you won't suffer. It's actually a guarantee that you will. And it's what you do with that suffering and how you respond to it. That's how God uses suffering to refine your faith and to conform you into the image of Christ. Well, you know, you said a lot there. I grew up in the church also. I became a Christian at a very young age. And, you know, I can I can say that the same is true for me. Although, um, you know, our, our experiences are, are different. Um, it took me a long time also to, to understand grace. And a lot of ways I lived by the rules and didn't really understand what all that meant until, until probably my 20s. I started really understanding more of the gospel and those types of things. So, you know, it does happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, why is it what we often lack becomes the object of our worship? Yeah, I think that when we, there's something in our life that we want. And, and like I said, it could be something good. It doesn't have to be like an evil desire. But when there's something in our life that we want and, and we cannot get it, we cannot acquire it, no matter how hard we work, it becomes... You we get tunnel vision really easily and it becomes like the sole focus of our life. And for me, that is what happened with wanting to be a mom, wanting to have kids and nothing else in my life really seemed to matter beyond having children. And I realized one day that no matter how hard I was trying to pry open this door that the Lord had firmly closed, I could not open it. And I realized that I was really only in this relationship with God for him to give me what I wanted. And so I was attaching something to my beliefs about God. So generally I would say that yes, God is good, but I really would believe that he was good if he would give me what it was I wanted. And so that opened my eyes to the fact that I wasn't worshiping God. I was worshiping God plus something else. I was worshiping what I wanted him to give me. And I think we do that because we just, like I said, we get tunnel vision and we obsess over the the things that we cannot have rather than stepping back and looking at what God might be doing when he says no. We tend to refuse to see no as anything other than bad, or God is wrong, or we're doing something wrong, or something about the situation is wrong. But that's not always why God says no. And sometimes we don't know why he says no, but uh, he is right in his in His no that he says to us. And if he, um, as the psalmist says, God withholds no good thing, that's really true. Then we have to look at his no or his yes, whatever it is that he does with our circumstances, not as him withholding something good, but doing what is best for us, kind of turning those terms on their head and, um, you know, stepping back and saying, okay, his no is not necessarily a bad thing, which is really hard when all you want is the one thing that you can't have. And I talk a lot about this in the book with, with the Israelites, because I feel like they had lots of tunnel vision, especially when they're wandering in the desert and all they can think about is what they're going to eat the next day, even though God has already provided for them. And they get so hung up on the things that, that they had back in the day when they were in slavery in Egypt, they really romanticized the past. Like it was a really good time. You know, they were slaves and yet they're in the desert and they're questioning God at every turn when he doesn't do exactly what they want him to do. They just jump ship so quickly. And I really identify with that when I look at my own circumstances. Um, I I worship the thing I can't have and I construct or kind of stitch together some haphazard way to meet my own needs, which is, I think, what we see the Israelites doing throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, that's that's really well said. I'm reading First Samuel, and I mean that, that's what it's all about. Yeah, they're they're like, oh well, yeah, uh, we have the ark and we can go to battle. Oh wait, God didn't uh, God didn't say we could go. Um, oops. Um, yeah, <laughs> now, now you're now Eli is going to die, and all of his line is going to die because they didn't listen to God and they didn't care about God. Mm-hmm. 
they were selfish and wicked. Oops, there you go. Um, and your God's showing them, hey, look at how great I am. Look at how good I am. Look at how I'm orchestrating all of history for your good. And we often think, well, God, people often think, well, God's evil. And, you know, that, that's so wrong. What they don't see is that this God is orchestrating all those things in the Old Testament. And God is God is faithful. He's patient. He's showing his character in his ways and Israel just can't see it. And and you're exactly right. You know, we can't see it. We we don't have eyes to see. That's why we have, you know, um that's what God does when he causes us to be born again. He allows us to have the illumination of the spirit and to be able to see that these truths in, in the scripture, and we, we still need that as Christians. We we need the illumination of, of God's spirit. Yeah, I agree. And I think too, like, so when he allows trials and sufferings into our life, those are just really good opportunities for us to, to lean away from the things that, you know, all those things that take our attention, the things that we lack, that we're so focused on. Sometimes it's those really hard trials that kind of help reset our vision and help us uh, refocus on, okay, what is actually true about God? It's it's for me historically. It's been the the times of suffering and trial that have helped me see what is His faithful character like. Kind of pulls me out of this pattern of worshiping what I can't have, and so you can kind of look at the things that He allowed the Israelites to endure. He was doing those things so that they would turn back to Him every time. He would remind them, like, "This is who I am. This is what I've done." And eventually, you know, they had these cycles of turning back to Him and turning back to Him, and uh, so He would allow things into their lives to kind of help refocus, stop looking at everything that was going on around them and to teach them to look to him. Yeah, that's really good. And when we don't look to him, what's going to happen? We're going to be full of anxiety and depression mm. and full of full of everything. I mean, some people, you know, legitimately struggle with depression and they need medical help. But a lot of the times we're just so full of de- depression and discouragement. I know for my, I'm talking to myself here mm. for sure right now. Uh, because we're not repenting of our sin and we're not casting ourselves wholly on the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ and, and on his faithful and good character. So. Right. Yeah. How, how does the goodness of God help Christians to face suffering? Well, I think that you have to go back and, and look at where we define God's goodness. And so you have to go back to the scriptures. You know, when I was going through these overlapping seasons, so like while going through infertility, we were also going through a prolonged season of just difficult church ministry, a lot of church hurt. And then I ended up dealing with a chronic pain disease for about six years before I was diagnosed and treated. And so I had all of these overlapping trials and I'm looking at these things and wondering what in the world is the Lord doing to me? I am not sure that he is good or if he's good, he's good to other people, just not to me, which is really a backwards form of pride to think that, you know, you're an exception. Um, But I had to go to the scriptures to define what is God's goodness look like and how is he good to his people? And so going to the Bible and looking at the characteristics of God and looking at the ways that he was good to his people, that is really what defined goodness. Because if I start with my circumstances and I say, well, this is happening and this is happening and this is happening, therefore God must not be good. Um, Then I'm coming and making a false statement about God just based upon what I'm seeing with my own two little small eyes that can only see so much. But if I start with God's own definition of his own goodness, if I go to the scriptures, let that be the lens through which I view my suffering, then I can see my suffering not as this really cold, you know, distant thing that God is allowing to happen to me that he doesn't really care. No, what I'm seeing 
seeing through the lens of scripture is that God is kind and merciful and just and holy and wise and trustworthy and present. And so if he has allowed suffering into my life, it must be for good purposes. So, you know, for the Christian, we have to start with scripture and let scripture inform what we believe about God's character so that we can view our circumstances, whether they're good or bad or difficult or easy, view that through the proper lens. Starting with circumstances, we work backwards and end up believing things that are not true about God's character. Does that make sense? I'm just nodding my head here. This is great. (laughs) You you nailed it. Nailed it. Really well said. How does, how does, you're welcome. How does, how does desperation for the Lord help Christians cultivate deep dependence on him? I think uh, you could probably ask any Christian who's lived through a trial or extended period of suffering, you know, what, uh, what was your relationship with Christ like during that time? And most people are going to say, well, something to the effect of, well, I wouldn't want to relive that time because it was hard, but I kind of miss how closely I I felt to, to the Lord. And I think the reason for that, that's pretty common experience. And I think the reason for that is we are always equally desperate for the Lord. We're as uh, desperate for Him on the best day of our lives as we are on the worst day of our lives. But I think when we are going through hard times, we are just, we just know it more. We're just really aware of our desperation. When we're going through difficult times, it just forces us to lean on Him in a way that times of comfort and ease do not. And so it's why we can look back and be thankful for trials because of the way God uses them to draw us near to Him. And so, you know, when you're, when I've gone through difficult times, it's those really dark days where I am having to hold fast to the truths of scripture. And I'm just in the word a lot, trying to remember what it is I believe about God's goodness and reminding myself over and over. And that desperation makes me dependent on him, but dependent is good. I mean, dependent reminds me that I am not self-sufficient. Only God is. And that is not a bad place to be desperate and dependent upon the Lord. Well said. Well said. How has learning the nearness of the Lord helped you to face the good and bad days and everywhere in between in your life? You know, the, it took me a long time to really learn that one of these main promises God has given us is His nearness. And but once I once I saw it in Scripture, I really couldn't unsee it. After that, it just seemed like a big, huge, highlighted theme in my Bible. And as I have thought through what His presence means for us, I mean, really, whatever season of life we're in, He is is enough for that season. If we are suffering, he is with us. If we are in a season that is, you know, comfortable and maybe tranquil for a while, he is enough during that season. And I think um, what his presence and focusing on it as I wrote the book and as I lived it prior to writing the book, what it's taught me is that I just need him at all times. I cannot follow him on my own. I need the ways that he has given me to understand his nearness, which I believe are his word, his prayer, his church, his spirit. I cannot follow him independently of those things. And so it is partaking of these like individual and corporate spiritual disciplines that keep me near him. I mean, he is always near, but I think as we practice those things, we are more aware of his nearness. And I think that is when we learn that his nearness is enough. It is enough to help us persevere through any season. You just hit on something that is huge, and that is the church and the Christian facing hard times. You know, I've, I've gone through, my parents, you don't know this, I don't think you know much about my story, but uh, my parents got divorced when I was a teenager. So we went through that. There's a lot of emotional and mental abuse in my childhood. Mm. So, yeah. What you're saying is spot on, whatever season, whatever, whatever is going on. It was because of men, strong Christian men that uh, I'm in ministry 
Um, I, I felt the calling to ministry at a young age of when I got saved at a young age and felt called to ministry at a young age. But it was it was strong men that, that kept me, I believe, even as a Christian. I mean, Christ always keeps us as a Christian. But mm-hmm. The church kept me as a Christian, too. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, I would have walked away from Jesus and the church, probably. Because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I had so much anger and so much bitterness. And uh, the church, you just hit on it. The church is there to, to help us, not to... Not to be a the, well. The church can hurt, and and people can hurt, and I've experienced that too. We'll talk about that here in a little. But uh, yeah, I've have seen the church at its best and its worst, and at its best, we're we're loving Jesus, and we're we're loving one another, and we're we're being there for one another, and and doing life with one another. And, uh, you know, and all the mess and the, the, the stuff that, that we go through, you know, if we love Jesus, we're going to love one another. And that's what we've been called to. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's so basic, but it's it's so true. You know, we make it, I think, I mean, there's other th- parts of it, too. But but at the root, we're supposed to love God and love one another. And that's right. Church is supposed to be about, and John, John 13, 35 tells us that, that the world will know us by our love. Mm-hmm. It's not... Uh, it's like my golf, my varsity golf coach used to tell me in high school, um, keep it simple, stupid. And I would add, yeah, yeah, stupid. Um, <laughs> be, because I would make it, the reason I would add that is because I would make it hard, the golf swing harder. And the same is true I found in the rest of my life. I make everything much harder than it needs to be. Yeah, we do overcomplicate things. I think of Hebrews 10, where the author of Hebrews is like really simple. Like, here's what you need to do because through the cross, through the work of the cross, Jesus has given you access to God. So you know, draw near to God, hold fast to your confession of faith, and do not neglect meeting together. I mean, it's really simple stuff. I mean, those are the things that God has given us to keep us near Him and to keep us you know, on the path of perseverance. But I mean, we just, we wreck it so easily. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how the church can can help us. I mean, godly people walking alongside mm-hmm. of us and, and showing us Christ-like love and, and listening and, and care, you know, these are all things that, that we're supposed to do as Christians. So so how does prioritizing our habits as Christians speak to what matters most to us? Yeah, I think that uh, what we do as Christians kind of tells the world what is important to us. It tells people where your treasure is. And I, I write about this in my book where I, uh, in the mornings I get up and I have this you know habit of making the coffee and reading my Bible and praying. And then I go to the front of my house and I kind of watch my neighborhood wake up. And I can tell which neighbor is going to do what each morning. And I know what's important to them from reading the newspaper to walking the dog and um, all of these different things. And I, I think that as Christians, you know, for me, rising early to read the word is really the only guarantee that it's going to happen during the day. And I find that, you know, as believers in Jesus, to quote the catechism, and I'm going to totally wreck this because I have a Baptist upbringing. I did not grow up with catechism, but we are not our own. We belong body and soul to Christ or to God. And so we, um, what we do with our days is a reflection of who we belong to. And so prioritizing those habits of Bible reading and prayer, and then think of the corporate ones of church attendance and involvement, communion, and those things declare who we belong to and who our treasure is. So, I mean, I always go back to the way that I am most certain that God is with me. The way that I know that He is present is not some feeling that I get, but it's sitting in the morning, opening up the Word, reading the words He has written 
and for us and knowing, you know, a heart and, and mind that he is with me because he has declared it in his word. The way that I'm confident in his presence is by reading it in his word, by praying to him, by meeting with people uh, in my local church and knowing that the same Holy Spirit who dwells in me dwells in them and enjoying God's presence that way through the body of Christ. Well said. What role has reading, studying, and meditating helped you in the challenges you write about in your own book? Going to the Bible, this is going to sound so cliche, but going to the Bible as the answer to what I was struggling with, it it changed my life. And that does sound cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. (laughs) And uh, I previously up to kind of these seasons of infertility and church hurt and chronic illness, um, I had really gone to the scriptures for, you know, some kind of, hey, what's in it for me? What can I learn about, you know, how much God is going to do this for me or how much he cares for me. And those things are true. He does care for us and he loves us. And the Bible is full of those promises. But um, when life got really hard, I needed to go to the Bible and figure out what was true about God's character, as I said earlier. And so the habits of reading the word, studying it, writing down and thinking through, meditating on the ways that God has loved and cared for his people, the ways that he exhibits his attributes of faithfulness and kindness and graciousness. I mean, doing those things on a regular basis really did sort of rewire my brain a little bit. It changed the way that I looked at all of life. And and for that reason, I'm really thankful that the Lord had me walk through those seasons because if not, I think I could have just sailed along in this comfortable life of ease thinking that, well, I'm a pretty good Christian and God really loves me. Look at my life. Look how great it is. But when I walked through a season of difficulty, I was able to say, I'm actually really struggling to hold on to my faith here, but look at the word and look how great God is and look how faithful he is. And so doing those things helped me to not necessarily overcome the challenges because the Lord didn't necessarily remove those struggles from my life, um, but they helped me to hold fast to his faithfulness in the midst of them. And I'm really glad that he didn't um, necessarily remove me from those trials as I was learning about his character, because I think then I would have valued the, the ease of suffering more than I would have valued him. And by having to kind of walk through the fire as I continue to learn about his faithfulness, it really uh, helped me to believe it and to own it really with, with everything I had that even if he didn't remove me from my trials or remove my suffering from my life, I could still believe that he was faithful. And uh, so really going to the word, studying, meditating, uh, meditating on scripture solidified what I thought was true, but really helped me to believe it with, you know, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Praise God for his grace. Yeah, absolutely. Praise God for, you know, the help of, of, of his spirit and helping you see those things and, you know, and, and helping you grow and, and to mm-hmm. see how important scripture is for yourself. You know, I, I have also uh, had similar experience, so I, I appreciate what you said. It's mm-hmm. good. Good. Well said. What role has waiting played in your own spiritual growth? Waiting is one of those things that nobody wants to do. You know, when we we are faced with seasons of waiting, really, we just want it to end. You know, no matter what the situation is, uh, waiting is hard and waiting seems like something you just have to endure and get through. But I really think that waiting is where God does a lot of sanctifying work. And the scriptures speak very 
positively of waiting. You have all these phrases as it is good to wait on the Lord. <laughs> and that seems to rub us the wrong way because waiting seems like like either we've done something wrong or God is holding out on us or, um, you know, some something's not right in the situation if we're having to wait. We live in a culture that does not induce us to wait well. I mean, we live in an instant gratification culture. I mean, anything you can think of, you can just about have at your doorstep via Amazon in a day or two. And so we do not wait well. Any like accumulation of information, all we have to do is tap a couple taps on our phone and we have everything we need or we think that we need, you know? And so we are impatient and then we live in a culture that just kind of continually primes us for impatience. Waiting then feels, um, it just rubs us the wrong way and it feels like this is not the right path to be on. But in the Bible, waiting is, is viewed differently. It's good to wait on the Lord. There's no shame in waiting on the Lord. And so I really think that is as we wait on Him, we learn to depend on Him. We learn, it goes back to just that desperation, that dependence. Um, waiting keeps us close to Him. It keeps us persistently calling out to Him. It keeps us persistently going to the Word to seek Him. Um, he is not Santa Claus. He is not a genie in a bottle, and we should not treat Him that way. It is good for us to wait on Him because I think it cultivates trust over time. That's really well said. Uh, I have an article coming out on that, uh, on waiting on the Lord and, and some challenges that, that I'm going through. And uh, what you said is, is just spot on. You know, the only thing I would add, it, it, it helps us to become formed by the word as mm-hmm. you talked earlier and, and you know. So yeah, uh, absolutely. That, but uh, just encouraging our listeners. Um, how did how did you learn to ask good questions of the biblical text, not to doubt God, but to develop for the trust and his reveal character in the word? My husband has always encouraged our congregation over the years that good ways to study the Bible are to ask questions of the text and to study the text as if you're going to teach it and to ask questions of it. Those things are going to help you study more deeply and to pay better attention. And so as I'm going through these difficult seasons, um, I am looking at the word and I'm asking, you know, instead of looking for what's in it for me, because that approach was not helping me, it was not encouraging me during my times of suffering. When I turn that question and what do I learn about God from the text? I literally just began with a notebook and a pen and just began writing down everything that scripture would tell me as I studied. What does this teach me about God's faithfulness? What does this teach me about his character? And I would write down the answers, whatever it said. If it said God is this, I would write it down. I did that for about two years. And that process of just asking one simple question of the text, I mean, it just, the Bible was a completely different book to me. Instead of being something like a, like a physician's desk reference where I would just go and try to find, you know, a cure for what ails you, I then began to see the scripture as this big story about God. And so I'm so grateful that my husband challenges us at, you know, as um, members of the church to study the text with questions in mind. I really think it helps us to examine like who is doing what, who who is behind all of this. And it's always the Lord and his sovereign hand working behind it. And uh, I find that to be really comforting and um, teaches me, it just expands my view of him. I had, a, I mean, I'm sure my view of him is still very small comparatively to what it, what he actually is. But before I began looking at the scripture this way, I just had such a teeny tiny little view of what he was like. Amen. 
we could we could sit here and talk about that. The, the <laughs> yeah. Um, so so yeah, I'm I'm just gonna say amen to that. <laughs> well said. Uh, what role have friends played in helping you through times of suffering? Um, you know, I tend to be one of these people that processes things by myself best, but I've had some good friends step in and um, really encourage me, specifically in kind of the the later years of just that decade of, of suffering. We walked through a very difficult adoption process with our youngest son. It was long and it was drawn out and we feared losing him on a daily basis. And I had really good friends from church who you know, would show up at my house just to sit and pray with me. On one of our many trips out of state to go to court, one of my friends from church uh, asked for a key to the house while we were gone and, and said, hey, I'm going to come clean your house for you while you're, while you're gone. And it was such a gift, just a really practical way to, to love us when there was nothing that no one, you know, no one could do anything about our situation. But hey, we can come in and take care of some practical needs. But honestly, the things that have helped me the most have been people who have prayed for me. And I am, I've learned that if people tell me they're going to pray for me, I, I really try to believe them. And I know what a comfort it is to know that people are, are upholding you in prayer when you're suffering and interceding on your behalf. And so I've learned that, you know, I, when I'm talking to someone who's going through a trial, there may not be anything I can do, but I know I can pray for them and I will do it. And I know what a gift that is. That's so good. I, I agree. I've experienced that too. Not, not exactly what you've gone through Yeah. with friends, to be clear. Yeah. 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 Not to make that really weird, but just for clarity. Um, how has the practice of lament helped you during seasons of grief and suffering? Mm-hmm. Yeah, during those uh, two years that I was really studying the word and looking at God's character, I mean, really those years have extended until now even. But during those early years, I camped out in the Psalms for a long time. And I mean, there's just so much about God's character in the Psalms. But I began to notice a pattern in the Psalms that the psalmist would often begin with some kind of... Um, um, lament and grieve whatever it is that they were going through, de- you know, d- depending on which psalmist it was. And then they would sort of panic about their situation and things would be terrible. And they have really dire statements, you know, like they're weeping and they can't sleep and they can't eat and they're wasting away. And sometimes I just know exactly how they feel. And I'm so thankful that we have that included in scripture. Um, but then they, what they usually do then is they stop and they remember God's past faithfulness and they will recount his deeds in the past of what he has done for Israel or what he has done for them personally. And it is that remembering God's past faithfulness that helps them then move to resolve to believe that God will continue to be faithful to them. And just seeing that pattern over and over in the Psalms, like this lament, panic, remember, resolve, um, it just gave me a a really sort of almost tangible way to work through my grief at the time, Um, specifically when we were living through our our son's difficult adoption process and I, I feared losing him. I would work through this process and I could remember what God had done in the past for me, how he had saved me, how he had redeemed my life from the pit, how I was dead in my sins and he has made me alive in Christ. And look at all the things he has done for me so that even if that situation didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, he has been historically faithful. He would continue to be faithful to me. And so that pattern in the Psalms really helped me to be honest about my grief before the Lord, because that was the pattern in scripture. So that must be something that we're supposed to do also. 
so, but then also don't stop there. Don't stop at lament. Don't stop at your panic, but remember who God is and what he has done. I mean, that comes from looking at scripture, looking back at what he has done for us. And then that kind of fueling your future faith in his future faithfulness. And so whatever the outcome would be, I would know that God would be faithful. That's beautifully said. Beautifully said. How have you experienced church hurt and how have you with it in your Christian life? Yeah, um, I write about this quite a bit in the book. Um, This is one of the main threads as I walk through um, my personal timeline and struggles. You know, being in church ministry is um, on the best days is messy. (laughs) And uh, we walked into ministry at very young ages. I was 24. My husband was 27 and he was now pastoring this church by himself. And we didn't know anyone. And uh, we walked into, you know, a, a situation that would have been difficult for anyone, but we were kind of outsiders coming into a small town and we weren't from the area and we, you know, we were outsiders in every way. And so we came in with kind of our passion for biblical literacy and reformed theology. And it was not as welcomed as we had hoped it would be. And the church had its own internal struggles. And so we walked through years and years of just what felt like completely failing ministry. Just, and I honestly, just, if I didn't believe in the Lord's sovereignty, I would really wonder why we weren't fired, to be honest. For some reason, we were allowed to stay. I mean, I know now why. Um, we struggled through probably 12, a good 11 or 12 years of just challenging, broken ministry. And I struggled to trust people um, because people would say, you know, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. We love you. We love your ministry. And then they would jump ship and they'd leave. And I saw that happen more times than I can count. And I put up a lot of walls as a defense during that time because I felt like I couldn't trust anyone. I mean, there really wasn't a safe place for the pastor's wife during a lot of those years. And so I felt betrayed by people that I, you know, we had come to serve and we brought our own baggage and they had their baggage. And I I did not understand how in the world this was going to work for good. And so um, I, my struggle to love God's people has been one of the hardest struggles of my life because our life is our ministry. Like we live in this town, in this state because of our ministry, we uprooted our lives and moved here for it. And so when it doesn't go well, you, you wonder what in the world is the purpose for your life here and who can you trust and, and, and how can the Lord work anything good from this? And so, um, you know, it was walking through suffering during that that same period of time of church hurt where I had to learn to lean on our people. Even though I wasn't sure who I could trust, I could not walk through suffering alone. And I also knew that Jesus loves his church. And if I'm going to love Jesus, like you said earlier, I have to love his people. Learning to kind of let the people of our church help us bear our suffering and the hard times we were going through. It was risky. It was messy. And yet learning to love the people of the church has, I mean, really helped me understand God's love for his people. He has given us the church as a a means of grace. I mean, the church is a gift. And I think sometimes I viewed the church as my enemy, to be honest, because I felt like it's us against them. It's us against them because we're always butting heads. But that is not the, that's not the way that we do ministry. It is all of us together being built into one family, one body, one building in Christ. 
Christ is our foundation. And so being hurt um, by the church is a difficult thing to overcome. And it does take a lot of time, but God can use your church to heal you of church hurt. And I, I can say that because he, had, he has done that for me. I look around at people in my congregation now, and sometimes I can't believe that we have all walked such a difficult road together. And I love them. They are my family, you know, as a um, really strong bonds. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that dealing with church hurt, overcoming it is learning to extend forgiveness and realizing that you inflict church hurt as much as anyone else. I think sometimes we get stuck in a victim mentality, but none of us are perfect and we're all being conformed to the image of Christ. And so we have to recognize that, look, the same Holy Spirit who lives in me lives in this other church member. And so I cannot claim to love Jesus and then hold a grudge towards this other church member. I have to love the bride of Christ. He loves her. He died for her. He will present her pure and spotless one day. And so I have to love her too. And sometimes it is a grit your teeth and, and bear it kind of love. And, and But over time, like I really believe that the Lord uh, blesses obedience there. And I'm really grateful. We are here 14 years now and seeing so much fruit from seeds we never thought would take root. I mean, God has just done great, great work in our church and in our own hearts, you know, kind of smashed our ministry dreams to pieces so that we would learn that this was about what He wanted, not what we wanted. And so I really praise Him and I'm so grateful to uh, our church congregation for staying with us all these years. What a wonderful testimony to the grace of God. Thank you so much for sharing. I I, I have experienced church hurt uh, both in ministry and as a church member. And, and it hurts. Mm. And I so appreciate what you said. It takes time. And it it's uh, sometimes, sometimes for some people, for me and my wife, that meant leaving the church where we were at, where mm. um, I was interning and needed to leave. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, God, but God, uh, I prayed and said, God, if you're going to take us out of here, you're going to have to send us to Shepherd to, uh, and I want to be careful how I say this, uh, care, because uh, I didn't feel like I was being cared about. Mm, mm, and yeah. so, so he did. And God is God's faithful, and God used that to to, to heal me. And uh, one of the guys that He used most powerfully, actually, literally, quite literally, I've had some pretty amazing mentors in my life. Um, I'm very thankful for that, and so is my wife. But uh, this guy changed my life, and it's not it's there, there's no other way to say that. Yeah. Uh, I just God helped me. He helped me through this, and he helped me to see other things in my life that. Now, really, I'm what you said. Uh, I, I'm the difficult person in the mirror. Uh, th that other person is not the most difficult person. In the mirror. That, that is you, Dave. That is you. You got to take a look in the mirror, and that has helped me so much to to remember to be. Hey, I deal with people over email. <laughs> you know, there's not much more challenging situation than than communicating to somebody. You know, uh, we need to work on this a little bit in your article because. It's going to come across wrong and, <laughs> or to an editor. Uh, you know, I want to be as clear and as gracious, but as firm as I don't like what you're saying. You know, and I had to learn that, you know, not over email. <laughs> I had to learn that in, in, in being with people. And and uh, I, I just really appreciate what you said about church. Or, and, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to leave either. Um, you stay. Yeah. You're a good example of that. And but but sometimes some people have to leave too. So, yeah. And that's okay. 
Um, yeah, I think you have to look at, you know, what is happening in the leadership, what is hap- what is coming from the pulpit. There's just so many factors into whether or not you should stay or go. And uh, um, I've seen a lot of people go for the wrong reasons. I've seen a lot of people stay that have surprised me. And, um, you know, we just go back to, you know, how can we best love the church? And what is what is Christ's love for his church look like in our setting? And so, yeah, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough call. Yeah, we're not trying to give a per- prescription for, for yeah. staying or leaving in church hurt, just to be clear. We're just right. saying this is, what, this is what we've gone through. And exactly. So you have to pray about it and, and seek uh, get lots of godly wisdom and, mm-hmm. and, and the word. So there's a lot, you know, that we haven't covered about this. I mean, some of these are just a podcast in themselves, to be honest. Uh, but uh, just as we wrap up, what what takeaways do you have, Gwena? Yeah, you know, I just, um, as I have thought through as we've been talking and, you know, the theme that just comes up and just about every question that you've asked, and these are good questions. Um, gosh, if I could encourage any listener, whatever situation that you are enduring right now, I mean, go to the word brother or sister, like the knowing what is true about God's character and how he loves his people by being near them is what will sustain you through your trial. I I don't know of any other takeaway I can give that's better than get in your Bible every day with as much desperation as you can muster and hold fast to the Lord who holds fast to you. I'll echo that prayer all day long. Yeah. <laughs> all day long. That's right. Where, uh, amen. Where, where can people, uh, last question, where can people learn more about your your work? Uh, probably the best place is just to go to my blog. I do blog every now and then. The book writing has sucked a little bit of my creativity out of my brain, but um, you can pretty well find me um, at glennamarshall.com. You can find links to all the social media stuff, uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of those things. But yeah, just head to my website and my information about my book and stuff is all there. Well, Glenna, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, what I've appreciated most is your is your honesty and your transparency and your most importantly, your faithfulness to the word and to the gospel and, and to calling people to being faithful to that and, and to stay in the church. So those, those are all very needed messages. And your book is uh, wonderfully written. It's uh, guys, it's the promises is presence. Why God is always enough. Um, it'll be out when this uh, goes up. So I want to just encourage you guys to, to pick it up. Thank you, Glenna. Well, for, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.